Chefs Without Restaurants, episode 77 with Michael Twitty. As African-Americans sort of like got further and further away from the Jim Crow South, the slavery South, the segregated South, there was also this absolute severance with certain foods. For example, everybody else is like, mmm, llama beans, butter beans. And I'm just like, oh my God, uh-huh. get away from me. And, you know, I, I don't know what it means to have a satisfying meal of cornbread and beans. Because we didn't have to eat, we didn't have to eat that ish, man. We didn't have to eat it all. My grandmother would make chitlins for my uncle and for my um, grandfather, but she cussed her way through it and she detested it. I mean, there was no scrapple in my house. There was no pig feet in my house. It was no, 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 no. And that was because we simply decided that was no longer going to be part of our repertoire. This is the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast with your host, Chris Spear. Each week, I'll be speaking with food entrepreneurs and people in the culinary industry. If you're interested in learning more about our organization dedicated to helping people build and grow their food businesses, look us up on the web at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and .org, and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Chefs Without Restaurants. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the season two premiere of the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. I'm your host, Chris Spear. On the show, I have conversations with culinary entrepreneurs and people in the food and beverage industry who took a different route. They're caterers, research chefs, personal chefs, cookbook authors, food truckers, farmers, cottage bakers, and all sorts of culinary renegades. I myself fall into the personal chef category as I started my own personal chef business, Perfect Little Bites, 10 years ago. And while I started working in kitchens in the early 90s, I've literally never worked in a restaurant unless you count Burger King. This week, I have Michael Twitty. He's a food writer, independent scholar, culinary historian, and historical interpreter, personally charged with preparing, preserving, and promoting African-American foodways and its parent traditions in Africa and her diaspora, and its legacy in the food culture of the American South. Michael is a Judaic studies teacher from the Washington, D.C. area, and his interests include food culture, food history, Jewish cultural issues, African-American history, and cultural politics. He started the blog Afroculinaria just about 10 years ago, and his book The Cooking Gene won the James Beard Award in 2018 for Book of the Year. I'm really excited to share this episode with you. I've been following Michael's work for a number of years now and was really glad that he took the time to come on the show. I'd love it if you would subscribe to the show, and if you listen on Apple Podcasts, a rating and review would be really great. And now, here's the show. Thanks so much for listening, and have a great week. Hey, Michael, how's it going? Thanks for coming on the show. I'm doing fun. How are you? I'm great. I'm really excited to talk to you. I, I hope your week's going uh, well or as, as good as it can be. These are some pretty weird times right now. Yeah, Chris, this is um, it's a time of shedding the snakeskin, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's a, a good way to put it. For our listeners who don't know who you are, and I think there probably aren't that many, I guess the best way is to say you're a culinary historian and you have a a great book that came out what's that been like three years ago yeah with a with a sort of a quick update the year following and i think there's going to be another update once it hits five years wow that's exciting Um, the cooking gene yeah um the cooking gene won the james beard award for book of the year in 2018 as well as best writing and um 
I couldn't be more thrilled with that because I was the first black author, black American author to win um, book of the year and, and I'm on my first go as well. So that was, that was, uh, that was, that was a labor of love. <laughs> I bet. Did you have any idea when you were writing it, how big this book would be? Did you realize the potential? And, you know, we're, we're going to go back a little bit before I get into this, but while we're there, did, did you think that this would be as well received as it was? Um, I hoped, I certainly hoped, I didn't know. And that's because, you know, that was my first big book and also through HarperCollins. So I had, you know, a big publisher behind me, but I essentially had to sell that book. I essentially had to market that book. And then of course there was the import of it, which is different from marketing. You know, why is a book important? Why is a cookbook important? Why is a memoir significant. That's very different from its market value. And so having to interact between those two spaces was tough. But oh, I didn't have any idea how well it would do. Um, you certainly, you know, ego and bravado are great things, but they don't pay bills. You have to really, you know, just for those people who really want to do a book, you have to think of this as a marathon, not as an instantaneous moment of fame or wealth. Those things aren't really there. But also, you know, I had to, I had to tell people point blank, Chris, I was like, even on Twitter, I remember one person said to me that something to the effect of, you know, don't market to us, just say cool stuff and we'll retweet it. And I'm just like, uh, 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 sit down. And everybody else was like, sit down because no, this is this is the business space. So I guess to answer your question, it's just like it's a blend of both having to do that elbow grease work of making your project um, soar and then also the hope that people will get it. And unfortunately, I spent a lot of time focusing on people who really didn't, you know, really weren't nice that I didn't know that I'll never know on, in, in the internets. And I didn't focus enough on all of the positive energy and blessings I was getting from doing this project. Yeah, it's, you know, kind of similarly, I found some of that with the podcast, you know, I started wanting to tell stories. And it's finding the way to, to tell the stories you want to tell, but then also kind of promoting it. I don't, I don't know, I've never been good at promotion or self promotion. And that's been really hard for me. And then, you know, all these opinions start coming out. And it's like listening to um, you know, finding, I guess, the place where the constructive criticism is versus the people who don't even know me and just want to bring some hate. Yes, yes. And that's so difficult, especially because everything now um, is done by the, the sort of electronic consensus vote. And I remember very early on, you know, talking to publishers and editors and the whole deal was, and it's funny because now, oh, how the mighty have fallen, Chris. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Like nobody, nobody is is uh, really that on top these days, and I say that because those same publishers were just like, "Oh, you can have this many social media followers," and back then it was some crazy number like, like uh, nine hundred, and now it's like a hundred thousand. Wow. Yeah, it went from nine hundred to thousand to 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 two thousand to five thousand to fifteen. You know, it's 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 all part of the story. Um, but I wanted to tell a story that um, was unique. That talked about food. That talked about America's original sins and 
that talked about my ancestors that talked about how you know food and cultural politics interact and it's it's something that's a project that's going to stay with me the cooking gene is going to be with me a very till the day i the day i leave this earth well let's back up a little bit who are you what was your upbringing like and your relationship with food how did you get into food and cooking well um i am 43 years old i was born in washington dc I know that there are people who have very specific feelings about what that means, but I stressed in the book and I'm stressing here that Washington for, especially for black folks who are Washingtonians and adjacent uh, was never a Northeastern city. It was an upper South border South city that was segregated. My father um, was born in D.C. over 80 some years ago in a thoroughly surrogated city. And my grand he told me, has told me multiple times that my grandfather, blessed memory, would talk about how like the minute you crossed over into Maryland, or the minute you crossed over into Virginia, you had to change your tone. You know, in Black D.C., you were safe. And so Black D.C. really shaped a lot of my... Um, my origin story, a lot of food from the Great Migration, a lot, you know, we weren't, it wasn't really up north either. Uh, it was a weird place to be. D.C. and Baltimore were never really like, uh, <laughs> the deep, they were never the deep south and they were never up north. And I think that's a, that's a very particular culture that people need to be very aware of. There, there were quite a number of cities and areas like that. Um, that was sort of sitting in not not even an in between space, but like almost like a wall. And a lot of those folks who did come to those communities who were not indigenous, who were from off, you know, came from nor- nearby Tidewater, Maryland, Virginia, um, the Eastern Carolinas, South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, West Virginia, Maryland, Delaware, the rural areas of those places. You know, tobacco growing, oyster raising. All that fed into, you know, who who we were. I didn't know that. And then on my mom's side were folks who escaped the Rust Belt. My grandfather and grandmother, blessed memory, and my mom's were born in Alabama. I grew up with them. And they went to Ohio the way everybody else did. You know, you went straight up. Ohio. They were, they were uh, Illinois. You know, they were ba- basically spread out from Pittsburgh to Cincinnati, Cleveland, Toledo, Akron, um, to Chicago, to Milwaukee. That was the Central South people. And so what people people need to understand is all those food traditions fed into the way I grew up. You know, uh, my grandmother was an excellent cook. My mother was an outstanding cook. There were little bits and impulses from the European ethnic communities that they lived next to in Ohio. Um, there were parts of 1950s cooking to 1970s cooking definitely in because I was born in the late 70s so all of that you know people forget that those three generations before them really do impact how you eat what you eat how you eat I did not grow up with what I call funky eating you know that just wasn't I mean and that and that's another part of the story is that I think people need to need to know that as African Americans could have sort of like got further and further away from, you know, the Jim Crow South, the slavery South, the surrogated South, 
there was also this absolute severance with certain foods. For example, everybody else is like, mm, llama beans, butter beans. And I'm just like, oh my God, uh-huh. get away from me. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know what it means to have a satisfying meal of cornbread and beans. Because hmm. we didn't have to eat, we didn't have to eat that ish, man. We didn't have to eat it all. My grandmother would make chitlins for my uncle and for my um, grandfather, but she cussed her way through it and she detested it. I mean, there was no scrapple in my house. There was no pig feet in my house. It was no, 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 no. And that was because we simply decided that was no longer going to be part of our repertoire. Yeah, you even said in the book that you didn't like soul food at all growing up, um, which I, I mean, I I am from the Boston area, so I didn't grow up with any of that. But now I live in Maryland and my father-in-law was born and raised in D.C. Uh, and that's all the stuff that he loves. He's a white man. Uh, and it's funny, like he's just like, yeah, go to the store and pick up some pig's feet next time you're there. Like, so my eating has changed drastically since I moved down here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's, and it's it's because when I was little, it was it was also the era of the the booming of fast food and convenience food um, in various forms. I mean, you know, I, I'm from the generation where the commercials had Elmer's glue to look like milk. Mm-hmm. Everything looked stylistic and aesthetically pleasing and important and there and present and. I, it just wasn't the same. We had bones in our pots and skin, bits of skin and and the cartilage. And just it was just like there was no hiding from the fact that you were engaging with death. And there was a certain smell and there was a certain look and there was a certain tenor. And my father used to eat a plate of chitlins like like kids eat pizza, for God's sakes. And, it, and he did it in the most, you know, performative, demonstrative, grotesque way especially at me because he knew I just hated chitlins. But, you know, I kind of got out of that. I mean, I ate fried chicken. I ate, you know, biscuits. I ate all that stuff. And I know, and especially my grandmother and mothers, you know. But to be real with you, I, like, got over that because my mother and grandmother and father and other people had me cook with them, and it gave me a sense of ownership. I liked cooking because it was... It, I could make a mess. I like making a mess. Um, <laughs> to the to the uh, to the consternation of my of my mom, a blessed memory, and uh, it just grew from there. And I and I and I had a lot of black pride in my household. I mean, someone said something really nasty on Twitter about me, like saying it just just you know amplifies the 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 anti blackness he grew up in. I didn't grow up in anti blackness. I grew up with a light-skinned grandmother who was actually quite, you know, you would have thought my grandmother was born, was was married to um, Lumumba in the Congo, the way she was so proud of being Black. And, you know, it's that kind of thing that people just don't get, is that um, being vulnerable and being open about your food story can also open you up to people who don't really want those stories to be told. I think that's the hardest part is... Man, I mean, I I just remember the very first time I had anything published on the internet that was in an external publication and how proud I was. And the very first comment was like some troll who was horribly rude. And it's just like, I don't understand people like inherently. Is this how people actually are? I, I know you've gotten a lot of hate. I've seen some of the stuff over the years and I just can't imagine how much it's coming at you uh, kind of from all sides at times. 
because you know one one particular vibe I get is how can you be black and and cook on plantations, do historical interpretive work? That's you know you're just showing white people we want to be slaves again. No, I'm doing a job. And, and, and by the way, when when you or your relatives come to Williamsburg or another site. And let's say, God forbid, there were no black interpreters and the history was never from the black perspective. You'd be complaining about that, too. But they don't see it that way. I, I mean, you know, they, they I mean, people literally have these fantasies, Chris. It's so, it's so unfortunate. These fantasies of me doing some shuck and jive grin show in front of white folks. And I'm just like, that's not the that the not the point. And then some people are like, well, you're not really reaching anybody. And I said, you know, get, get out of my face. How dare you? The bottom line is we have to be able to bring people to the table. We have to have hard conversations over this food. We have to really be honest about where this food comes from and the politics of this food and, and how it's been used to divide us and how it can be used to bring us together. And that's really what my aim is. And I'm, and I'm beginning to become a lot wiser and a lot more open about just not focusing on those folks and focusing on what my real end is. And my real end is that the people who created this incredible cuisine should have honored where it's due and respect where it's due. And that we should go forward into our future being far more mindful of how we pass down our narratives through food. So when did you really first start digging into all of this, the, the real history of both your family and uh, African and African-American cooking? When I was very young, very young. I would say probably, you know, by the time I um, was in middle school. What triggered that? What made you want to start doing that? I don't know if it was a trigger. I just think that I just grew up in a space where I loved history. I loved food. And I had people who were willing to tell me a lot about where they came from, what food meant to them. I mean, I mean, a lot of the stories that we told as a family were especially salient when my when my grandmother would talk about, you know, for example, her grandmother making sausage at hog killing time and how she would, you know, grow all the sage and red pepper to put in the sausage. And, you know, no one made sausage like her and all these other things. And so that my my gear started turning. I'm like, well, how does that work? What What is hog killing time? You know, asking those kind of questions. And then doing the research. And, you know, it was, I was, it was not easy because, you know, you would think that everybody would like incline themselves to help you navigate your journey. And that's not how it worked. You know, <laughs> I remember going to the, to the, to the, the bookstore in the mall and they had the whole Foxfire series. And so I had to teach myself at, you know, 13, 14, what that was, what it's about without internet you know, just kind of figuring it out on my own and, and trying to like navigate this, this, this huge food heritage thing. Yeah. These kids today don't know how to operate without the internet. I'm 44. So you and I similar age and, you know, having to go to a library and look for books, it, it, it was a lot harder to do any kind of intense research at that time. And card catalog. Card catalog for sure. So when did you start doing the, the, the cooking like at Colonial Williamsburg. When was that? So I, I'm an itinerant, so I've done it all over the place. At first, it was very difficult because, um, to be honest with you, 
I thought you could just do like stroke hooking on the slide. So I would do these programs all around the DC area, uh, DMV area. And one day this, uh, this, this person I knew said to me, you know, it's a great idea what you're doing, but you got to get the right, the pots, the right clothes, the right, this, the right, that. And I took the advice, not personally. I just like, okay, all right, how do I do that? So I started researching heirloom vegetable gardening, which I had never heard of. And that led me down a wormhole. This is, this is a long time ago. This is now, we're now talking about um, something like 20 years of doing this work. And so then it was what the pots and I didn't have any money. So that meant really slowly one skillet that's far from historic, but that was better than, you know, not having a skillet at all or, you know, pseudo historic clothes versus tailor made ones. So I really had to build up a whole material uh, collection, you know, the tools, the utensils, the pots, the pans, the things to go along with those pots and pans, things to, you know, to at least make one plate of food, you get a pewter plate, they do this to do that. You don't get the point. Yeah. Just building a whole repertoire and not being institutional at it because quite frankly, um, you know, there were a lot of places out there that, you know, they were telling little bits of the black story, but they were completely racist. And by racist, what I mean is, they didn't really value the black voice. They didn't think black people were educated enough or they didn't want to hire us to do, to tell our own stories. So they were perfectly happy telling our story without us, which goes back to my comment. I made a few minutes ago about how some of the younger generation of African-American folks who critique me without knowing exactly what I do need to understand is because they, 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 you know, no one had to hire us. And we were hired before to do these jobs. We were silent and submissive. You know, we were only, we were, we, of course, we were the coach, the, the, you know, drivers, the coach. Of course, we were the cooks in the kitchen. But I got to tell you, those cooks in the kitchen back in the day uh, in historical sites, you didn't, you, they didn't say anything more than hello, goodbye, thank you. And here, there's the bathroom. Because they, those institutions did not want them telling their story as black people. Mm-hmm. Mm. So who is who creates those programs? Is it whoever oversees each site? Like, where are they getting their information about how the historical interpreter should be acting? Where's that coming from? Um, it's it's a blend, and in a, I'm a contract a contractor. Uh, so I'm a, I, as an itinerant, I make up my own programs. I do my thing. I've been brought in because, you know, I've created a niche arena where I'm like, okay, this is what I do. This is why I do it. This is what we're doing because no one else does it. No one else does this work. No one, it's strange to be in the planet of what, seven plus billion people. And who do you, you know, who do you want to talk to about how, you know, early African-Americans from the 17th to the 19th centuries cooked and ate and how they lived and it's me and a couple other people, and I'm probably the only one who does it full time. That's crazy. Yeah, but good for being the one to do it. Uh, I, I think that's fantastic. It's 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 hard because you know at one at some point you look at yourself and go, well, how do I pass this on? How do I create a legacy? You know, we aren't forever, and our ancestors weren't forever. So how do we 
how do we pass these stories on? How do we, you know, right now that's a big part of my work. You know, the cooking gene, uh, to give everybody a sum up, you know, it first started off as a Southern Discomfort Tour. And the Southern Discomfort Tour was about me reclaiming memory because I was starting to forget some things. And I didn't want to be one of those people who was just like, yeah, I kind of got some ancestry from here and people are from here and I don't know very much about it. And, you know, people smile and they shrug it off. And I thought that was not appropriate for me as a historian. I think if you're a historian, you should know your own history. Your own person, where, where, you know, where do you sit in history? Where do you sit in terms of our cultural memory, in terms of our material culture, in terms of our culinary history? Um, we are both uh, about the same age. So for us, you know, to, to tell, we were born to, to the world of TV dinners. We were born into the microwave generation. We were the first generation. Where, remember when the microwave was was like like these little air fryers now? And oh, yeah. Like, oh, my God. Let's cook a whole chicken in the microwave. Did you have one of those bacon cookers, which is like the tray with the yes. raised slats, and you just put bacon on it with a piece of uh, uh, paper over it uh, uh-huh. and, and, and microwave bacon, which is like not good at all. I don't I don't maybe they've made advances since then, but I don't think we've microwaved bacon in like 30 years. No, but it was quick. And <laughs> And, and and that we have the little magic chef microwave. Oh yeah, yeah. And I was just thinking the other day there was that line of frozen dinners that was like hamburgers, fries, and there was like milkshakes. And my friends and I loved them. And you could just like microwave a hamburger and the French fries, and it was like, oh, we don't even have to drive out to McDonald's. I mean, I was like, right. eight. I couldn't drive anywhere. Right. <laughs> That's exactly it. And of course, we're the frozen pizza generation. So, um, I mean, knowing that now, and knowing that the generation Z has, you know, plays with Legos that are have an organic smoothie set. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's a, you know, I, 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 as much as I do love culinary history of, you know, the early America, the colonial antebellum South, I may be one of these good days, maybe one of these good days where I can still enjoy the afterglow of it is to write about that transition. Because I think people, I think unfortunately people believe like history is for your ancestors. No, you you are in history. You are living in history for every day that passes and doesn't occur again, which is every day, makes us a part of history. And even things we take for granted, like our like our sort of like ready-made culinary world that we were born into versus the world that we know, which is growing the food and, and re- becoming reacquainted with the past the food, but also, you know, being forward thinking about food, taking old foods in new ways and taking food in different directions. You know, uh, the glory of my life was to go to um, Stone Barns. And when I was, I didn't realize that the porcelain I was eating on was the bones of the cattle. Wow, that's really cool. You know, that kind of stuff. Uh, But that's a world that I, I think you and I never would have thought of when we were little. No. When we were younger. I didn't even think of this stuff when I was 20. You know, I went to culinary school. I graduated Johnson & Wales in 98. And, like, I just wanted to cook food. And now, you know, there's a lot of discussions about food and being political and all this. I I didn't even think about that for so long. Like, I just thought you just went to culinary school. You could make whatever. You know, I'm a 
a white guy from New England, and I was like, oh, I kind of want to go like open a Cajun restaurant. Like I didn't even know what that <laughs> meant. I I had never been to New Orleans. Like I had never even eaten Cajun food. I just thought you could read some cookbooks and make whatever the hell you wanted. You know, I just felt even at twenty one, I was very naive, and it's it's really been an evolution over the past twenty years. You know, I think what you just said is really um, impactful. And you're the only person who I said who who I've met who've, who's actually just blurted it out and been really honest about it. I thought you could read a cookbook and just do whatever, cook whatever. And I think that really, I mean, that really applies to the way people look at um, black food. I think people really believe, and I think, and it, and it goes to for for what you said had was was totally, you know, nonpartisan non-particular which is like the idea that a cookbook is just a manual like a, like a plumbing manual and if you know how to you know tinker you're great you're fine you're awesome it's all good and i think with a lot of ethnic food ways i think the problem is is that at the end of the day it's de- far deeper than read the man you know my mother used to say uh read the bleep manual it was just like no it, it's 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 culture it's history it's a certain vibe it's the keys to the executive bathroom. It's the, it's it, it's the the code. It's the ma- having the master code behind all of the the bells and whistles and buttons. And I think that you have to really sort of do this kind of deep dive, respectful initiation almost to be able to really comprehend and apprehend what the, all that means before you go in the kitchen and cook something. And I think that's what I think people, sometimes people get mad on the other side. Like, you know, that that's one of the biggest criticisms I get from white people is that, you know, how special could y'all be? You know, which which yeah. implies a certain amount of racism, right? Or at least ignorance of just like, no, you, there's so many layers and levels that you have to get to before you can even begin to approach this material in a kitchen. You know, it's challenging because I say, like, I don't even really have a food culture and I didn't grow up like I grew up eating the same time frame as you. Like the food wasn't really special. I grew up outside of Boston. You know, my family's ancestors are from England. You know, I'm not really particularly interested in like English food. And I think that that kind of stuff is bland. I, you know, I didn't grow up in a Mexican household or an Italian household. Like we just ate kind of like 80s casseroles and stuff, you know. So when mm-hmm. I went to culinary school, I had these grand visions of like, now I'm taking foods of Asia and foods of France and all this and was exposed to all these cultures and flavors. It's like, that's the food I want to make. But I have no reference point for that because I didn't grow up eating it. I didn't grow up cooking it. And, you know, it's it's really a challenging time. And, and now I'm living down in the Maryland, which in, you know, some people consider the South, right? Like I never thought of it as the South when I was living up in the Boston area. And it's like, what is my food now? You know, I have my own personal chef business. What kind of food can I make? Should I make? And I still challenge with that. Like, should I be making shrimp and grits? You know, a dish that I never had until, you know, eight years ago um, that I have no history with. And so I still even kind of grapple with that because I don't really have this like food history or culture that I grew up with. So still trying to find like my voice and my vision, I guess, through food. And I, you know, and that's for me, it's the same thing. But, you know, here's the deal. I think we're kind of in the same boat, but different coin, different sides of the same coin. And I say that because my early struggle to identify with soul food was not about, you know, I, I connected to some some parts of anti-blackness that I got from society. That's where that person messed up. It was from society. It wasn't from my family. 
Um, it was from a world where there was no, no, wasn't no damn Beyonce, wasn't no, wasn't no, you know, a Barack Obama, you know, the, the, you know, wasn't no Kamala Harris, wasn't no none of that. You know, we had yeah. the hope of Jesse Jackson. We had a, we had an ever, an ever changing, ever molting Michael Jackson. We had a black mayor in D.C. who who lost everything because of an affair and because of his um, involvement with drugs. I mean, I, I mean, I mean, you know, and I say that because I have a lot of love and respect for Marion Barry, especially, you know, him before that incident and him when he redeemed himself. But I say that to say as a black kid growing up in D.C., I didn't have the same resources that these folks have now. I, there, there was not the same language, and, and it wasn't the same relationship to our history. I mean, people people still in the Black community are ambivalent about African-American vernacular cooking. Uh-huh. You know, there is still an ambivalence. And an ambivalence is not just because of, of times moving on. It's because people, people really do believe that anything and everything that has the touch of that part of our Southern story and background is poisonous. And it goes from being talking about is it healthy, is it not healthy, to that slave food, to um, how, you know, I don't, I, I don't want to touch that. That's 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 this or that's you know, all these connotations that go along with it are, that are very negative. And then there are other folks who are just like you know, think that there is a very set black menu, you know, it's it's, it's all in one bubble. And you know, for example, the infamous Whole Foods greens with peanuts. And I had to explain to people, hey guys, um, there's this place called Africa, a big old continent with with lots of countries, and in most of those countries, leafy greens are paired with peanuts. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, but then and then you have then you have a whole other issue, Chris, of diaspora wars, where some of us are are just fine, are just fine sitting up here eating jollof rice and jerk chicken and fried chicken and and collard greens and, you know, ru- you know, rundown stew and, and, you know, chicken and groundnut stew all together. Because it's Black diaspora. We're all from the same places and homes. It doesn't really matter. And then others of us are like, my food and my culture is better than your culture. I have a culture. You don't have a culture. Da, 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 da. Those, those things impact our food journeys. And they certainly, and for Black chefs in particular, the same time period when going to school and getting a certificate and a degree was critical to your success as a chef was the same time that black chefs in the kitchen started to become decimated. You know, not the folks who went to school, but people who would always cook that way, who, who learned French cooking in the kitchen, who went the way from dishwasher to, to head chef or sous chef. Um, and then it was like, you got to go to school. Okay. So that means the folks who did this, almost in a hereditary way, oh, they, they, they were lost. And then the other generation, the generation that's going into school that's Black, that's going, to, that's going to culinary school, are being told, yeah, you should probably do better than that soul food and that Southern cook. You can do this. You should do this to prove yourself. And so the French cooking and the Italian, the sushi, you know, they, they got uplifted. And at the same time, we started to abandon those things. And the same time we were abandoning those things, it's the same time that other people are picking up and going, flying with them, because there is a Paul Prudhomme, because there's a Justin Wilson, because there is a Nellie Dupree, 
because there are people on PBS and, and and other things. The chef stars coming up, and then that led to the Food Network. Right, we have Tyler Florence, and we have um, Alton Brown, who's not really a southern. He, he's southern, but he doesn't really advertise himself that way. But you know, Paula Dean. You know, <laughs> I'm sure you could go into Paula Dean a lot. Yeah, well, Paula Dean never, you know, to, to catch people up. I wrote a a letter to Paula Dean uh, in 2012 that went viral, and um, or was it 2013? 2013, sorry, 2013 went viral, and um, you know, I invited her to a meal I was making on a historic plantation in North Carolina that was a fundraiser for um, a historical organization trying to preserve the dwellings our ancestors lived in on that property. And she never showed up, and 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 that helped spur on the cooking gene in some ways, because people really wanted to know who I was after that. And that was after I had traveled the South and done three big trips, going from you know up and down. I mean, across the South, one of the most important summers of my life, Chris. Not just because it shaped the book uh, that, and I didn't really intend to write a book at that point. I was just doing it to see how far I could go with those journeys and that, and that intent, that purpose. But it was important for me because I had, I had literally dreamed of for years of doing something like that. Since, since my grandmother was alive of blessed memory, which meant, you know, 12 and 13 years old. And here I was almost 40 and I'm, you know, I'm making this massive sort of like odyssey across the American South with the soul and intent purpose of connecting the food to the, to the stories of my ancestors, our ancestors, racial justice, innovation, creativity, and working through healing the trauma of American slavery. And it just changed my life forever. In fact, I remember sitting down with the rabbi at Temple Bethel in Birmingham, which is not very far from the church where the four little girls were, were murdered in 63. And she said to me, do you realize that this is, your life is going to change forever because of this? And it was the first time I had to really confront the fact, really scary fact, that now that I had met these foods on the road, I was never going to be the same person again. Mm-hmm. That must have been an amazing trip and so eye-opening, right? It was because I didn't... Um, it was before, it was kind of like in a weird spot politically. You know, we went from being, you know, hey, yay, this is great. Life is awesome. We have a black president to people really being vicious about it. And I was worried, not scared as in, oh my God, I'm going to whatever, but I was worried that that would tamper my ability to connect with people. And really relate and really have honest, open conversations. And it didn't. It didn't, thank God. Maybe I was just blessed and, and things were what they were. But I mean, just being able to eat a Creole tomato. I understand how different that tomato is from a tomato grown anywhere else because of the nature of the soil of South Louisiana. Um, what it meant to have fresh sorghum in Tennessee. You know, what it meant to, you know, have somebody pull blue crabs out of the bay in Southern Maryland, what it meant to see the real deal country hams hanging up in Virginia. All of these sort of like moments of just 
you know, this is where it is that, you know, Chilton Pete from Alabama. This is where it is. This is why it's important. This is why it should smell a certain way and look a certain way. And this is what it means to the people who eat it. You can't get that from a book. Not at all. And we don't talk enough about terroir, I think. You know, like, people have a garden and they grow a tomato here in Maryland. And they, I think a lot of people assume that it tastes the same as it does, you know, down down south or whatever. Mm. Yeah, no way. No way. It's it's a... It's you know for example going to New England and this is and this is something that we should really emphasize. Most Americans, I I, I was I was horrified to find myself. Most Americans, in their lifetime, you know, God, in their lifetime, fourteen, fifteen states max, hmm. and that's being generous. I think the real number is like twelve, and I think most people, if they do travel. They will get to New York, they'll get to Florida, they'll get to California, they'll get to Chicago or Hawaii. Those are the top five other places they'll go. For the most part, they'll never know what it means to be in the middle of Georgia or in Wyoming or some other other place or go to Maine, for example. And even even one of the reasons why I even bring this up is that I'm just like, oh, so the bottom line here is this. If you don't see other places and intimately get to know them and the people and their food and everything about it. How is it that you get to make pronouncements and pronunciations over the general body politic and culture when you don't know your own neighbors and fellow citizens? And some people, and some people travel and they, they'll go to a place like Georgia, but they won't eat a local restaurant. They'll eat in Applebee's. So even if they do travel, they're not getting that local flair. Exactly. They're not getting it. Um, and that's just a, it's just a, it's just a sad example of how we're not really taking advantage of the abundance and diversity that we are blessed to have by virtue of consequence of being in the United States of America. Now, so you're Jewish, but you weren't born Jewish. You chose to convert. How old were you when you converted to Judaism? Um, in my 20s. Um, to be real with you, this is how I describe it now on the whole picture. So people need to understand that um, I have I have some I have some Jewish ancestry um, from Ukraine. I know I always knew this because we had stories about it in my family, but it wasn't like Ukraine or Germany. It was just like, you know, we had Jewish ancestors and um, not black. But I kind of knew that. But I grew up in a very Jewish area once we got to Maryland. And I did convert when I was in my early 20s. And I also knew I had this little spark. And then when I, you know, found out later on, oh, yeah, you've got actual biological Jewish cousins from Ukraine and a lot of them. It was just like the African ancestry stuff. It was just like, okay. So these these voices are these voices and these flavors and these foods are calling the 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 phone call is coming from in the house. <laughs> you know, it's not yeah. it's not all just outsiders. So to me, it was never really exotic. And right now, I'm working on Kosher Soul, which is talking about part of that journey. I I want to make myself as as little as exotic as 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 little strange and exotic as possible. Because I want people to understand that I've interviewed a lot of people who are black and Jewish, who are born Jewish, who are biracial, who were born of black Jewish families that have been black and Jewish for uh, quite some time, hundreds of years, 
um, if not centuries and millennia. And um, there's some people who con who convert and just like, yeah, converted, no big deal. Um, there's some people who don't talk about it in those terms. There are people who have, you know, blended families where they're not, well, they participate in Jewish culture and culinary tradition, but aren't necessarily Jewish themselves. So there's this whole world of Blacks involved in Judaism in America and beyond that have incorporated into kosher soul and asking those questions of identity. But one, one of the things that really interested me was the, to the degree to which that Southern Jews, um, through their neighbors, through people, Black domestics who worked in those households, had an entire, you know, um, as, as Marcy Cohen Ferris puts it, matzah ball gumbo cuisine that was less about fusion and more about finding acceptance in a region where they were definitely a minority. And I know people tend to think of the South as being, oh my God, the last place Jews would immigrate to and be a part of, but that's actually not true. Charleston and Savannah in the colonial period had more Jews in New York and Philadelphia. Um, New Orleans, a close third in, in the early 19th century. Um, and beyond that history, there were Jews scattered throughout the Deep South and they set up communities and those communities created a whole cuisine that was a bridge between Jewish cuisines of the old world and Southern, particularly Black-based cuisines of the American South. And I thought that everybody did that. And it turns out that there <laughs> that for a lot of African-American Jews in the, in the Northeast or Midwest or West Coast, that's really, they tend to keep the two cuisines separate. Um, they make appearances at, you know, so for example, you might have a, a chicken gumbo in an Orthodox Black family in Los Angeles, you know, with roots in Louisiana and other places. But that's not like my, like, you know, fusion, not fusion, but the best of both worlds Venn diagram, you know, Afro Ashkafardi cooking. And the people who do this the most are actually white Southerners who convert to Judaism. Interesting. Yes, that's what I found. It's like, whoa, but I, they, you know, I've also been, you know, the receiving end of many calls over the past 15 years of people going, hey, Mr. Twitty, I know you're into, you, you do this and I'm Jewish and I converted and I'm white and, and I'm Southern and I, I really can't let go of my, my food, but I don't know always how to make it kosher or this or that, or I want to have an idea. And yeah, they, they communicate that to me, that, that it's, it's so important to them. One thing I want to dispel right now is that Southern food doesn't require pork, ladies and gentlemen. One of the biggest questions I get is how can you do Jewish food, kosher food, and Southern food without the pork? Come on now. And I'm just like, that's, there was, there's no Bible that said that's a necessity. Uh, not at all. And for, by the way, the tradition that I come from, the offshoot of Southern food that I come from, is born in an African tradition that didn't have hardly any pork for 70,000 years. So, I mean, eh, shrug. Um, there are these things called smoked turkey necks, wings, backbones, and everything else. And beef can be smoked, and lamb bacon, and duck bacon. I, it, you know what I'm saying? You can do a lot with that smoked turkey. You can do a lot with that. And I mean, there's so many, I think people forget that the that the, the most important part isn't pork or pork fat even. It's the smoky flavor and you know that little bit of the little bit of grease in the water. That's that's the most important part. It's not that you ate pork. 
there's Judaism, the faith is Jewish. There's the Jewish people, you know, and that's why the food is so important. The religious dietary laws, and then there's there's also, you know, the food that becomes part of the diaspora and it's moving. It's it's you know it's journeys, and that's why the Jewish food is not just you know, you can be Jewish and and faithful through your food and not through your religion, and that's very hard for people to understand. <laughs> Yeah. I actually have run two kosher kitchens in my life. I went into it with no experience and I just needed a job. And uh, I ended up working in retirement communities, one in Seattle and one outside Philadelphia, but they were full on, you know, three kitchens, three kitchens, meat, dairy, parv. Uh, You know, Mm -hmm. I, I worked at a place we had like 750 people living there and it was just like... Man, it was it was a lot to take in, but it was really cool, and I enjoyed that. And at the time, I was a vegetarian, so I loved it because I knew wow. at least you know uh, on dairy meals or you know anything that came out of the parf kitchen was going to be okay for me to eat. So, yeah, Fantastic. that was it was a whole learning experience. Yeah, I worked at a retirement community in Seattle. Uh, Kenny G's grandmother lived there, uh, and, ah, and you know, what? yeah, I would sit, I would go to her apartment, and we'd sit on the balcony eating Krispy Kreme donuts, like overlooking. Uh, the water in Seattle and tell stories. So yeah, I've, I've met some really cool people in my time. So you had your website, Afro Culinaria, and I just, I wanted to go back really quick and look through it before we talked. And I realized, I don't even know if you know this, your first post was on January 12th, 2011, which is exactly wow. 10 years ago today. So happy wow. anniversary. Did you, did you even know that? We didn't, we didn't plan that, but I was just, uh, that's how I first encountered your work was through there. And I was looking, I was thinking, wow, how, how long has that been? I'm like, oh, we're going to do the podcast and it's going to be exactly <laughs> 10 years. So happy anniversary. Thank you so much. Um, I didn't even realize, wow, happy birthday to me. Yeah, time flies, well, right? What a, what a, yeah. Cause like, I think it's once you get the, once you start working on the book, or books, plural. The for what I do, which is not so much like, you know, recipe based, but can't ever. It's it starts to change, you know, where your focus is. Because mm-hmm. you don't get money from blog. Oh no, I've been doing it. Uh, I think like twelve years now, and right. <laughs> no money at all. You get money from being uh, uh, cooking gigs and speaking and writing, but not from, so I, I hate to, I hate to say that, but now that you, now that you've told me I have to do some kind of anniversary thing. Wow. <laughs> not to, not to throw another thing on your to-do list today, but yeah. yeah just, but just I mean, put... it's, it's, I guess, I guess it's fun because that get, you know, it, I think people understand with food, I'll think of the question, are you a chef? You're a chef. Do you have a restaurant? Mm. And people can only understand me in terms of catering restaurants and cookbooks. And I'm like, no, some of us need to be nutritionists and some of us need to be personal chefs and some of us need to need to be in hotels or retirement communities or cultural and community centers. And some of us run restaurants and some of us write cookbooks and just getting people to understand that. You know, if I if I was running a restaurant, I sure as hell wouldn't be talking to them because it's so <laughs> yeah, much work. They don't get it. They, you know what I'm saying? They don't get it that that restaurant life, the, the, the amount of privilege you would have to have to be able to both have the restaurant and then dream up fantastic recipes and flavor combinations and whisk them away and then have time to converse with the entire world. 
Throwback. <laughs> That's why this is Chefs Without Restaurants. But, you know, I've I've talked about, like, even dealing with what I perceived, and maybe it's all in my head, but, like, the disappointment when people found out I didn't work in restaurants. Like, they would say, hey. what do you do? I'm a chef. And they'd get all excited and say, where? And I'd say, like, I work for Sodexo, which is a contract food service company in a retirement community. And they just kind of <laughs> look at you like... Oh, I thought you were cool, you know? And, and right, like, right, 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 right. It's like, no, no. Like, you know, uh, and it took a long ter- a long time for me to come to terms with being comfortable with who I am professionally and how I self-identify. But there's so many more of us. I think if you looked at all the people in all aspects of food and beverage, there's more of us than restaurant cooks and chefs, maybe. Especially right now. Especially right now. There's so many, so many even restaurant chefs are now chefs without restaurants, unfortunately. We are, we, I mean, think about this. Those of us who do food work outside of a brick and mortar, you know, and I've said a thousand million times that for a lot of us chefs of color, being without a brick and mortar is because of a lot of things that come from systemic racism. Mm -hmm. But I mean, if you just take that out by itself, you know, we are the barbecue man on the side of the road. We're the people who do like the the pop-up dinner in the middle of a field at a, at a, a, a Southern farm with picnic tables. You know, we, we've been able to use these, these survival methods passed down from the past generations to be able to weather this pandemic and it, and it's financial aftermath in ways that other people aren't. And I mean, as long as chefs and restaurants depend on a certain amount of cachet based on the history, the food, the culture, the people, I'm not going out of business no time soon. Mm-hmm. Because there are other things. I mean, your grandma needs to eat. So therefore, there needs to be somebody who is a competent chef with the nutritionist background that's going to be able to be there for her. And by the way, people, everybody can't cook. So people do need personal chefs and culinary assistants to get them through that. And by the way, we have cultural and societal ills it can only be healed through through mutual awareness and cultural literacy that's where i come in on top of just being a griot or in west africa that's that's the the french gloss the word for storyteller for generations that have been cut off i mean that's why i did what i did and that's why i do what i do is because i want to tell stories about people like myself who are outliers but also you know massive amounts of people whose story was never taught to people in school. You know, if people understood the story of just, you know, the things that talked about the cooking gene, they would understand black history from a far different perspective and excuse me, American history from a far different perspective than what they got growing up. I didn't get any, you know, in New England, you learn more about the Revolutionary War than the Civil War. Like, I'm sure I learned somewhat about the Civil War, but I didn't really know much about that, much about the South. Uh, We had one... African-American, maybe two in my graduating class at my high school of like 250 kids. Like I just didn't, I didn't grow up having any, having any black friends or uh, experience with like black culture or any of that. And it was a, a good long time before I even encountered that. Yeah. I mean, I don't, uh, that's just why I didn't even think about that till I uh, met a group of uh, kids that I was doing a program for high school kids from Alaska. I didn't realize that First of all, being on the East Coast is being on the East Coast. You have access to a lot, particularly if you live in a DMV, the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, all of that is right there. 
you know, it, you don't realize that somebody in Massachusetts has a much less, you know, uh, visceral understanding of Antietam or Manassas, you know, um, than, than you do. Or that for them, Bunker Hill and, and, you know, Boston Common and all these other, and the harbor where the tea was thrown in is right there. Versus something that you have to go, you go, huh? So my one time, I'm from a place called Marlboro, Massachusetts, and we have this thing called the John Brown Bell in Marlboro. And I, I can say without a doubt, nobody really cares about this thing, okay? It's really sad because now I live by Harper's Ferry. When you go to Harper's Ferry, there's a building there, and it has the old firehouse or whatever it is, and the bell is missing. The troops that came down from Marlboro were actually told that they could keep whatever they found when they came down here when they fought, and they took the bell, the bell that John Brown rang um, in Harper's Ferry, and it was dragged back from Harper's Ferry up to Marlboro, Massachusetts, where it still lays. I'm of the feeling that this is something that needs to come back down here to the south. It's a missing piece, but it's been this battle for a number of years. I didn't even know that until I moved down here. I didn't even uh, know that you like, told me. Like 10 years ago. Yeah, they they wanted it for the front of their fire truck in Marlboro. So these guys came down here to fight and were told, yeah, you know, like spoils of war, whatever you find, you can bring. And they brought the bell back. And uh, I guess it went on a fire truck in Marlboro for a number of years, like way back when. And now it's in this tower that's guarded with like security alarms and everything, because I, I think People have tried to steal it, but they are still standing their ground that this is something that they rightfully deserve or earned or whatever that is. And I just think it's so sad because I go to Harper's Ferry all the time with my kids. And every time I look up now and see this thing where the bell should have been, I think, like, how can I help facilitate getting this back? I don't know if I can, if I have that ability, but I just feel like, oh, man, it's just not right. Mm, I've never heard of this. Ah, wow. Yeah. Incredible. So that's my Massachusetts tie to to the South and Civil War. That's that's you know, that's incredible. Wow, I can't I can't deal. Well, I really want to thank you for coming on the show. I know we're getting towards the end of time, and I I just wanted to say how much of a pleasure it's been. I've really enjoyed your work. I've you know read the the blog and the book, and uh, yeah, I I hope you enjoyed coming on talking with me. Oh, this is fantastic. No, we we we're kind of over we're kind of overdue for a big discussion. And, you know, you know, hopefully once the, um, you know, the Rona, gets the <laughs> yeah. paint, we can, we can have a, we can have a face to face and cook together. I'd like that. Yeah. It, it's, uh, the Rona has been a weird time, but I'm, I'm optimistic that we're maybe starting to wind down. My wife goes to get her second vaccination shot in a week, but I think we still have a long ways to go. Oh, very cool. Very cool. Very cool. Um, you know. Well, we have a long way to go, but um, I'm glad that something is happening good <laughs> for mm. someone. I still haven't gotten mine yet, and I can't wait to because I really just want this to be over. All right. All right. Well, to all our listeners, thanks so much. This has been the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. As always, you can find us at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and .org and on all social media platforms. Thanks so much, and have a great week. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show or sponsoring a show, please let us know. We can be reached at chefswithoutrestaurants at gmail.com. Thanks so much.